What I'd like to endeavor to do this evening is to pull together some of the strands of the instructions and teachings we've been giving so far and to put them really under one umbrella. So some of tonight, of course, you will have heard before, but that's always true anyway. And the, the Buddha once said that just as the great oceans have just one taste, which is the taste of salt, he said the whole of this path and the whole of this teaching has just one taste, and it is the taste of freedom. He said that this taste of freedom pervades the whole of the teaching and practice from its most gentle surfaces to its unfathomable depths. So this evening I'd like to reflect upon that taste of freedom as it runs through and is reflected in the Satipatthana Sutta, a teaching which we've referred to many times over the course of the retreat. But it is one of the most important uh, teachings in terms of the development of mindfulness and of insight meditation. And this teaching begins with the words of saying that this path and practice has only one direction and one outcome, and it is freedom the unshakable liberation of the heart. You might say in the end of this discourse, it says, and if someone is to practice this path for, for seven years or even for seven months or even for seven weeks or even for seven days, they will come to know profound and unshakable liberation. I'd like to point out you've got a couple of days left, so (laughs) get going. (laughs) If you're still in the starting blocks, it's time to move. (laughs) Now, when Siddhartha took his seat under the Bodhi tree, that clearly wasn't the beginning of his story or of his journey. As we do, he brought to that seat, in a way, the story of his life and the understandings that had been born of that story. He'd learned certain lessons, lived as a young prince, a privileged young boy and man, a life that was actually saturated, as the story goes, with indulgence, with uh, sensory gratification, a life of security, life of position and identity. Notice that Siddhartha didn't begin the path necessarily as a tormented young man. He did begin the path as a disappointed young man. Because one of the lessons that he'd learned from that life of privilege and indulgence was that all of that role and identity and certainty actually didn't bring him the enduring peace and freedom and happiness that he longed for. And that life of security and privilege, it didn't protect him from the rhythms of life of which he was a part. 
birth, aging, sickness, and death. He also brought to his seat the understandings born of his life as an ascetic. And his life as an ascetic was basically a life lived as a reaction to his life of indulgence and pleasure. And he also discovered that self-denial, self-abuse, judgment, disconnection, that all of that also equally did not bring him enduring peace or happiness and freedom. So these lessons of extremes that he brought to to the Bodhi tree were lessons that were incredibly important in the forging of what is called the middle path between the extremes of indulgence and rejection, craving and aversion. They were lessons that brought to this teaching the importance of inclusiveness, of turning towards our life rather than away from it as a ground for our awakening. He also brought the lesson to his seat that he'd learned about generosity because it was really the simple gift of kindness and generosity in the form of uh, a kind of rice gruel that was offered to him by a young woman called Sujata as he lay devastated by self-mortification on a riverbank. And it was that gift that saved his life. And he learned about the generosity of needing to care for his body. And it gave rise to another important lesson that he brought to his seat, which was really the ethics of loving kindness, of caring for his life, of not harming anything, including himself, an attitude of compassion and respect. Now, these insights, these understandings, in a way, kind of set the stage for his journey. They were turning points in attitude and understanding. They really became the ground for his awakening, and it's it's kind of the legacy of those lessons that actually many of us have inherited in our own practice and in our own work. Now, like Siddhartha, our journey and our story doesn't begin the moment that we take our seat in formal meditation. There are all lessons, there are many lessons that we bring to this moment to being here. There's lessons that we've learned in our lives about what leads to suffering and about what leads to the end of suffering. I find that many Westerners in meditation practice come to retreats already with a lot of insight. I mean, we tend to be uh, reflective, self-aware, inquiring people. And in truth, we've we've learned many of the same lessons as Siddhartha, that the lessons of aversion and resistance only magnify suffering. We've learned the importance of kindness and patience, qualities so essential if we are going to meet some of the adversity and hardship that life brings. We've also discovered that disconnection and fear really only serve to make us feel powerless and impotent in the face of life's realities, and that disconnection and fear 
really only serve to disable our capacities for joy and for sensitivity and freedom. We've learned the lessons that endless sensory gratification really only offer temporary pleasure, but little enduring happiness, and do little to really bring comfort to an aching heart. I think we've also discovered the wisdom of a middle path, of calm ground between succumbing and overcoming, being overwhelmed or controlling. I think, too, like Siddhartha, we bring that same longing for a taste of freedom. As Saripatthana Sutta begins with the encouragement to take our seat, actually the encouragement is to take your seat in a forest, in an empty hut, at the root of a tree. But it's really an encouragement to take your seat in mindfulness and solitude. In mindfulness and solitude. And I know for many of you coming here, the attentiveness we've talked about, about collecting and gathering our attentiveness, has not just been collecting and gathering in the midst of a wayward mind. I know for many of you coming here, you've had to know how to take your seat and collect and gather yourself from some of the baggage of the past, the apprehensions and rehearsals about the future, the, you know, the, 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 all the ties that kind of call for your attention and for many of you to collect and gather yourselves in the midst of a very busy, engaged, sometimes overfull life. Now, this encouragement to take our seat in solitude is, is not an encouragement, really, to, to flee from the world, but much more to treasure awakening and to know that no matter how much we're surrounded by people who love and who care for us, this journey and this path, we need to know how to walk alone. No one can do it for us. And as we do this, as we take our seat, there is actually already a taste of freedom because we're learning to be upright, to rely upon ourselves, to have confidence in ourselves, to not lean. And this is actually a great gesture of freedom. It's a statement of confidence. Being here is a statement of confidence in our own capacity for awakening. And it's a surrender of despair and of powerlessness, a statement of confidence in our willingness and our capacity to meet ourselves in our lives because we stop running. We learn the wisdom to stop fleeing. It's a kind of returning home, and and somehow it's really important to taste the freedom of that of letting go of all the agitation and fear that is endlessly involved in trying all our efforts to avoid, to flee from the difficult and from life. And to acknowledge that taste of freedom. And, you know, the way the Buddha did that when he was kind of taunted and tempted by Mara. And the last of the great taunts was doubt. 
Say, you, you can't do this. Not possible, you're not good enough to do this. And Siddhartha's response was to just reach over and to touch the ground. He was there. That was enough. I think taking our seat in solitude is also a shift, perhaps, in our understanding, our conventional understanding of what it means to even be free. Because we really start to understand that genuine freedom is much more than just license. It's much more than just the license to pursue our passing whims or impulses or desires. The freedom of this path that is offered by this path is actually the unshakable freedom from greed and from hatred and from delusion. To discover a profound inner autonomy and unshakable wisdom not governed by anything. And paradoxically, you know, to to know this kind of inner freedom, it's almost like in the beginning, like we do here, we we almost curtail the pursuit of those passing whims and impulses that previously we may have defined as freedom. So we take our seat just as Siddhartha did, sitting, walking, surrounded by our life. Because I'm sure you've all noticed that your life has indeed followed you onto the cushion and into your walking path. And as we sit, we can almost see ourselves or imagine ourselves kind of sitting in the center of a circle surrounded by those that we love and those that we struggle with, surrounded by all our adversities and our joys, our likes and our dislikes, our histories and our hopes. But guess what? They're all here with us. And amidst all of this, we're asked to taste the freedom of being able and willing to welcome You know, sometimes it's said the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. (laughs) And mindfulness asks us to find the great way. On this subject of preferences, which I might just make a little divergence, uh, I was very curious when I went into the staff dining room for dinner tonight. And I thought, oh, have a bagel for dinner. So there's two big bags of bagels on the side. And I went to get a bagel, and I said, there were only bottoms. <laughs> there was not one top of a bagel to be found in this entire bag of bagels. Need I say more? <laughs> the tops of the bagels currently being digested when we go down the food line. Do we notice that little subtle movement of preference? I think I'll only have the tops. It's got the seeds, you know. Who wants the bottoms? Right. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And I surely did have an opportunity to practice that at dinner this evening. (laughs) 
But mindfulness really does ask us to find that great way, to bring a, a receptive and an interested awareness into this circle, excluding nothing, calmly, knowing, non-judgmental, to be in our world. Because freedom, as it is taught in this path, is not outside of this life. It is in the heart of it. It's not outside of the difficult and the painful. It's not outside of suffering. It's within it. And we learn, you know, just a little bit at a time, bite-sized pieces, to taste the freedom of being unconditionally present. Some things we notice. When you give up aversion, you actually also simultaneously give up a lot of fear and anxiety and apprehension. Notice that? You've probably seen that even in the body. You know, the moment that you give up aversion in the body, you give up the story about what will happen, how will it turn out, is it going to get worse, I can't bear this. So giving up aversion is actually giving up many of these other strands of aversion. When we give up the tendency to welcome only the pleasant, we give up our bondage to the pleasant. It no longer governs our heart, and we give up simultaneously a lot of that agitation of, oh, you know, how do I get this? How do I make my world safe? How do I make my world certain? You know, how do I always get what I want? And we bring in an unconditional attention and mindfulness first to our breathing and to be aware of the body of the breath. So what is the freedom that we can taste within the body of the breath? The Buddha described mindfulness of breathing as a noble and a divine way to practice. We might say the purpose of mindfulness of breathing is to taste the freedom of a stable, balanced, non-dwelling, calm heart, a mind that is a friend. The calmness and the stability that frees us from restlessness and agitation, from being lost in past and future, in rehearsal, in speculation, in all the stories that we tell. Now, the mind that learns to find freedom from and within all of this, it's not a vacuum. You know, you mustn't imagine that, you know, okay, I'm going to be really mindful of my breathing. What's that mind going to look like? What is that heart going to look like that's that's really balanced, that is really collected and gathered. It's not bland. We're not talking about cultivating a blank mind. But a mind that is deeply empathic, appreciative, joyful. And to sense a mind that has this capacity to be remarkably vital, reflective, creative. As I mentioned the other evening, I'm not interested in teaching people really not to think. I'm surely interested in teaching people how to think well, how to think clearly, consciously, creatively, reflectively. 
Now, the instruction in the Satipatthana Sutras really begins very simple. It says, know the breathing as it is. Long, short, deep, shallow. Experience the whole body of the breath. To find and to cultivate a sense of fusion, a sense of oneness with the breathing. Knowing the breathing from its beginning to its ending. And in doing that, to calm the body formations. To calm the formations of tension, of restlessness, of dullness. And I think in terms of insight and freedom, our relationship to our breathing is a kind of microcosmic view of our relationship to many, many things in our lives. Within our breathing, we also can get a glimpse of how suffering and struggle is born and how it really comes to an end. In fact, the whole of the path and the whole of the practice could be said to be just in this first instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta. If you noticed, I mean, it's come up so many times, hasn't it, this week, about doing it right? About doing it right. We have so many ideas even about how our breathing should be, what a right breath looks like. You know, we we find ourselves sometimes struggling to kind of control or mold our breathing to fit in with our ideas and expectations of how it should be. Have you noticed we might tend to do this once or twice in our lives? It's a microcosmic view. As we come to know our breathing just as it is, long, short, deep, shallow, rough, smooth, it doesn't matter. We're learning to let go of the demands and the expectations. And we're learning to align ourselves with the simple truth of our breathing just as it is. It's a lesson in learning to align ourselves with the simple truth of the moment of life just as it is. This is a hard lesson for us to learn. You know, because we see our life is just peppered with shoulds, with wants, with expectations. And we usually learn this lesson of aligning ourselves with what is the hard way, basically. We usually learn to let, learn it through suffering. Because we, we learn so many times over and over again in our life that the cost of holding on to our shoulds is inevitably painful. And the gap between the way things are and the way we want them to be is actually an ocean of tears. So there is actually a very deep freedom in learning to release the shoulds. Because when we release the shoulds, we also release the blame. The voice that sings this, its endless song of disappointment. I've disappointed myself. You've disappointed me. I've disappointed you. Why? Because we think things, or I, or you, have not been how we think you should be or I should be. So we begin to taste the freedom of shouldlessness. <laughs> the freedom of blamelessness. We learn to taste the freedom within our breathing of letting go of the heroic effort to control all things, to control 
the unpredictable conditions of this life. And the taste of that freedom is a very, very deep sense of ease. The peace that comes with being with life each moment just as it is. The instruction goes on to experience the whole body of the breathing. To dive deeply into our breathing is essentially to learn to let go of the breather. And it's just a small, but it's a, it's a significant glimpse of the freedom that is found not only in letting go of the identification with the breather, but also the identification with the doer, the thinker, the experiencer, the winner, the loser, and ultimately not to be identified with the sufferer. Finding a sense of oneness, a fusion within our breathing. The next instruction is to calm the bodily and the mental formations. As I mentioned, the formations of tension, of agitation. This begins to happen really quite naturally, and we really see the interplay, as I'm sure you all know, of mind and body. That as the agitation and the restlessness of our mind begins to calm, so too do the bodily formations. It gets reflected in our breathing and one of our bodies and in our bodies. I think one of the most precious gifts we can ever offer to ourselves and perhaps to offer to the whole world is the gift of calming agitation and restlessness. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, great Vietnamese teacher, he and he talked about the end of the Vietnam War when all the refugees were fleeing from Vietnam in these small, leaky boats setting out into this dangerous, dangerous ocean voyage. He used to say, if there was one person in the boat who could remain calm, it could mean the difference between life and death for everyone else on the boat. It's not easy to train ourselves, to train ourselves in this calming, balancing, collecting. We get lost so many times, but we really train ourselves one moment at a time. You know, sometimes we think, oh, it's too hard, you know, it's such a long journey. But the size of our task is only equal to the size of the moment. It's not bigger than that. That is the size of our task that moment that we are in. We come back to our breathing to be mindful a thousand times, two thousand times, in a single sitting. Who's counting? Who's counting? It's a wonderful poem many of you will know, but I'll share it with you anyway. It's called Lost by David Wagoner. He says, Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. 
If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Coming back this thousand, two thousand times, it bears fruit. It does bear fruit. We start to taste the calmness, the peace, the ease of being free within our breathing. Now that freedom and collectedness serves as a natural foundation for expanding our awareness. And we contemplate our body with uninterrupted mindfulness, the instruction is, whether sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, to contemplate the body internally and to contemplate the body externally. Why? Just as we suffer within our body, so too are we asked to find the end of suffering within our body. How do we suffer within our body? Mostly through fear of our mortality. You know, Stephen Levine, who has done much wonderful work on death and dying, he was once leading a workshop and he began it by asking people, anybody who was going to die to raise their hand. <laughs> it took a really long time <laughs> for anyone put their hand up. We see the fear of pain, the fear of illness, the fear of aging, all happening within our body. And yet the truth is none of of us are exempt from these changes that will happen. It's a simple truth. There is much that is lovely within our body. All the things our body can do, can experience, can express, delightful sensations, affection, love, There's also the unlovely and the difficult within the body, the pain, sometimes intractable illness. And we suffer in our body, as John was talking about last night, the suffering of the double dukkha, because of the identification, I am my body, my body is myself. Everything that happens in my body happens to me. Sometimes we evaluate, even despise our bodies. In youth, We exult over our bodies and wish it would last forever. At least some people do, not everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And we say how much aversion and craving happens within the body. We want it to last forever, the beautiful, the lovely. And we fear the aching, the weak, the unreliable body. Now, what are the insights, the freedoms we're really asked to find within this body? Because, you know, in truth, we obsessively contemplate our bodies throughout our lives. This is like not a new instruction. (laughs) You know, and as we get, you know, we contemplate our bodies in mirrors, you know, and, you know, in reflections of others, you know. And as you get older, you contemplate your body in the company of others, you know, your gynecologist, your dentist, you know. Your neurologist, you're all hanging around contemplating your body all the time, you know. But it's not always insightful, is it? (laughs) So what are the insights to find within your body? 
You know, how do we contemplate this body with insight? Well, first, the instruction is to know the body in the body. Not to know the body as my body, but to know the body in the body. To know the body as a body. To know the body like all things is born of conditions and subject to conditions. And to know the body like all bodies to be held within the natural rhythms of arising and passing of birth and death. To explore the possibility of not clinging, of not being identified in the, with the body as self. Really to liberate the body from the suffering of aversion and craving. The Buddha once said that to to practice mindfulness of the body is to find the way to partake of the deathless, source of joy. Now, it's not easy, as you've noticed, to contemplate the body as a body. Mostly we find ourselves contemplating the body through the lens of our ideas, our emotions, our views about the body. And the practice of insight really encourages us to go underneath these views, what we do again and again in our practice, every time we turn towards pain without the habit of flight, every time we turn towards pain or difficulty in the body and surround it with mindfulness and loving kindness, we are learning to contemplate the body as a body. And within our bodies, we learn to unlayer fear and aversion, the habits of clinging, and we begin to taste the freedom of that. And this really has profound implications for our life. Profound implications for our life. To contemplate all things within themselves rather than as extensions or servants of our craving and aversion. To contemplate all things as they are without seeing them only in relationship to what they can bring to us with what we want from them. Really, to liberate the body from craving and aversion is a lesson in liberating the world from craving and aversion. In the path of compassion, it is said, All things are made easier, more possible through acquaintance, through intimacy. So patiently becoming acquainted with small harms, I shall compassionately learn to embrace greater harms. So we really need to see this contemplation of the body as a training ground in compassion, a training ground in the liberation of fear and craving and aversion. Learning to embrace this body with wisdom and compassion is learning to embrace all bodies and life with the same wisdom and compassion. To see, to understand, and to align ourselves with the changing nature of our body is to align ourselves with the truth of impermanence in every area of our lives, to taste the freedom that doesn't fear endings, birth and death, Come together. This seems often when we hear it like bad news. But it's a simple and liberating truth, and it teaches us. The truth of impermanence teaches us not to grasp hold of anything, not to cling to anything, 
not to lay claim to anything, not even to call this body mine. And it's a remarkable freedom. But to do the opposite, to try to call this body mine, to try to preserve it, it's like trying to stay upright in the midst of a raging river. You know what we're really learning to do here on this cushion? We are learning how to die. That is what we're doing. We are learning how to die with grace, with peace, aligned with the simple truths of life. We're learning how to die with freedom. A taste of freedom can be very found very powerfully in our body and our liberation from fear and aversion. And then our body is really a vehicle of compassion, of love, of sensitivity. Now, the encouragement in the discourse then is to expand this contemplation into the realm of feeling, as we were speaking about, not emotion, but this basic ground of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And sometimes people are puzzled, like, why is this such a, a, one of the foundations of mindfulness? Why is it giving so much importance? But as we spoke about already, this bare level, this bare ground of experience, it's like the basement of a building. It's like the basement of a house. Upon that ground, upon those foundations, we do build this world. And the contemplation is simply to know how we feel with such clarity and immediacy that mindful presence before the onset of reactions and impulses and projections, before aversion and craving and delusion set in. In the instructions, it's also encouraged to know the feeling that leads to suffering and to know the feelings that lead to the end of suffering. And it's not the feelings themselves. It is what surrounds them. So how do we suffer within feeling, and how do we find that taste of freedom in feeling? First of all, we see how quickly and habitual is the relationship formed between feeling and history. Feeling and history. The memory that is loaded within perception. Look at the very simple examples here. You know, you stand in the lunch line. Have you ever found yourself leaning forward? Why is that person in front of you the most slow, mindful yogi in the entire world? Have you ever noticed it's just the smell or the sight, and already you're leaning forward? You ever notice in your life like someone's offended you or something? And you know, like, that, like they're on vacation in Florida and you're still kind of chewing over this resentment? Hmm? It's the unpleasant and the pleasant constantly triggering these conditioned reactions, this historical baggage that doesn't allow us to see anything as it is in this moment. We don't suffer in feeling. You know, it's the banana. (laughs) We suffer in the contractedness around it. So where do we taste the freedom? 
will actually in the same feelings. The one thing we notice about feeling is so ephemeral, ephemeral, so changing. I mean, the only way to have a sustained feeling, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, would be to have the world of sensory impression and perception stay exactly the same. Now, that ain't going to happen. We live in a shifting and a changing world. And when we don't notice this, then we keep tying ourselves to feeling tones because we want them or we don't want them. Now, one of the suttas likens this world of changing feelings like the winds in the sky, cold, wet, dry, warm, and we don't argue with them, and we don't argue with the changing nature of feeling. Perhaps we can cut the ties between feeling and history, between feeling and conditioned reaction. This is actually equanimity, and it's a tremendous liberation. Now, this path invites us to imagine a life where we are not governed by craving, aversion, by wanting, by not wanting. To imagine a life where there's a heart and mind of boundless ease and sufficiency. To imagine a life of kindness and love that is steeped in wisdom, that is free from this aching sense of there being something missing, the freedom of peace. Now we're also encouraged, the discourse, the teaching goes on, to encourage us to find that taste of freedom in our mind. And mostly I'm sure what you've experienced here is that your mind really does exist in a state of potentiality, that your capacity for joy lives side by side, your capacity for despair and depression. Your capacity for restlessness lives side by side with your capacity for profound serenity and calmness. The capacity for dullness lives side by side with the capacity for a remarkable clarity. So what does it mean for us to have a mind that is free and liberated? Because this is actually spoken about again and again in the teaching. The Buddha speaks of the mind that is luminous, the heart that is luminous, radiant, bright, limitless, imbued with understanding and kindness, liberated from contractedness and dullness and doubt. And our path is actually to know the liberated mind. And it begins with knowing the mind just as it is, knowing the heart just as it is, without judgment but with curiosity, with investigation, to be mindful of the mind. And again, the encouragement is to (coughs) contemplate the mind in the mind, not my mind, not the mind I need to have, but to contemplate the mind in the mind. And being aware of the mind is like using a mirror to see our own reflection. And in that mirror, we see the changing shape of the mind moment by moment, contracted, spacious, Dull, clear, sad, elated, despairing, joyful. The lovely and the unlovely are appearing and disappearing in the same mirror. And we begin to see with some immediacy what it is that leads to suffering and what leads away from suffering to freedom. 
And this discernment, this insight, is really, really important to show the path to freedom, to show what it is that we cultivate and nurture and what we are asked to let go of with kindness. When the Buddha sat with his mind, he sat with the mind that we all sit with, not a different mind. Sat with that welcome, knowing the mind and knowing the possibility of not being governed or bound, of tasting the freedom of non-clinging. I am not my mind, my mind is not me. The mind is the mind. And to begin to discover the freedom of a naturally collected mind, the Buddha likened this discovery to a sudden liberation from indebtedness or servitude. He he likened this this freedom within the mind to finding the cool shade of a tree in in a scorching day. Now again, non-clinging does not leave a vacuum behind it. The liberated mind is the root and the embodiment of loving-kindness, compassion, and peace. It is something we cultivate moment to moment, to taste the freedom, to really taste it, very many small tastes in a single day, as we step out of the cycles of obsession and grasping and fear. We sense that taste of freedom that comes with putting down the burden of me and mine, and it belongs to me. And that allows our capacity for compassion, allows and enables our capacity for loving kindness. And we learn, I think it's so important to, to learn this in this practice, to the many moments of freedom that we do taste in a day, to truly taste them, because they're like our guides. They're like our signposts. And, and we do taste them moment to moment, and we cultivate them. We taste the freedom that is really begins with our willingness to be so, so deeply dedicated and wholeheartedly present in our life. We have just a moment together. <coughs> All things are made easier, more possible, through acquaintance, through intimacy. Patiently becoming acquainted with small harms, I shall compassionately learn to embrace all harms. Thank you. It's a walking period.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.